Hey there, Midnight Warriors, and welcome to another episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Hunter Cates. On today's show, we're reviewing Alejandro González Iñárritu's frontier revenge epic, Leonardo V. Bear, a.k.a. The Revenant. Then in special features, we will discuss the enduring critical and commercial dominance of DiCaprio in Leo, the last movie star. And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Well, in our last episode, Chris, we discussed the Oscars, and part of our conversation was the Oscars So White controversy, and since that time, the Academy has attempted to rectify it, and so we're going to talk a little bit about whether or not we think this will do so, but in a nutshell, for those of you who do not know, the Board of Governors of the Academy voted that each new Academy member's voting status will last 10 years and will renew contingent on their participation in making films. Uh, Members also receive lifetime voting rights after three 10-year terms, or if they have been nominated for an Oscar in that time. And then also, beyond just voting rights, uh, they're going to, this is kind of vague, but they said efforts will be made to diversify membership by identifying and recruiting people internationally. So my question to you, Chris, beyond who cares, we're going to pretend that we care. Well, actually, how about that? Do you, do you really care about this? I, I do care. I, I think it's a little more complicated than what they have laid out. Like I've, and I've seen, you know, praise of this and criticism of this. Right. And I think it, it, as, as I am want to do, I lie somewhere in the middle of this because I think, you know, you look at this year and um, there's, there's only a handful of people who there, you know, people who are outraged or even saying should have been nominated. Um, there's Ryan Coogler and, um, Michael B. Jordan. Michael B. Jordan for Creed, which I think that's the most interesting one just because Stallone got a nomination. Mm-hmm. So it's not a case of like we hypothesized with Straight Out of Compton, maybe people didn't see it. People clearly saw, either clearly saw um Creed or they just said, Oh, let's give let's give Stallone another mm-hmm. another Right, Oscar. exactly. It was just a reflexive action. Um that's the more blatant snub to me. Uh, I know people have said, well, what about Idris Elba for Beast of No Nation? What about something like Straight Outta Compton? Um, and I, you know, Beast of No Nation, it's a Netflix movie. It's a, and I know Netflix has seen, um, you know, some success in the Emmys, but the Emmys are not the Oscars. And so for that one, maybe it's just, you know, Netflix hasn't broken through into the Oscars. Yet. Right. They're not, they're not the Weinsteins who, I mean, that's another one, actually, I think, um, I, I don't know, you know, how much buzz there was about Samuel L. Jackson for probably what would you say he would be supporting, even though he's probably the the hateful eight. You the, mean, yeah. Um, actually, yeah, they probably do it as supporting, just because that seems to be the more less right. competitive field. But I mean, that one's a little surprising as well, because I guarantee you the Weinstein's were probably pushing, pushing for, for it. That. But I mean, hateful eight, as we know, was completely. Out of the running for right, everything. Except so. for Ennio Morricone for best right, score. Right, which I really – I didn't love that score. So we Oscar, didn't talk Oscar's that. so Italian. But um, you brought up a good point with the wine scenes. So I'll get to that in a second. Um, reading through this, I, I'm not the type to get outraged about anything necessarily. I was upset about Creed because as as we pointed out, that was my uh, favorite picture of the year. Right, However, and I couldn't say anything about Creed because I still haven't seen it yet. So which, which, I don't know. But um, it might eventually become a war crime if you wait too much longer. <laughs> but um, anyway, so – so I was upset about that, and I don't really know what that was about. But I was listening to, for some context here, I was listening to Brett Easton Ellis's podcast where he interviewed Quentin Tarantino, and they were talking a little bit about Selma and how Quentin Tarantino didn't like Selma. He joked that it was a TV movie that should have won an Emmy. And so 
I Brett, don't. I don't totally disagree. Well, with and so that. The, and so that's the point. Is Brett Easton Ellis had living in Los Angeles and kind of sort of being in the industry? He said that the industry, whenever that was announced, or, or whether, or rather, whenever Selma wasn't nominated, no one really was surprised by it. They didn't consider it a snub because they didn't consider it the best picture. Mm-hmm. It was the media, and that's the thing about me is I'm always going to go to probably blaming journalists on this. It felt more like this case, and then last year, it's almost something that's just kind of not a story necessarily that is blown up into becoming a story because the media needs to get clicks and sell newspapers. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's, I, I, I get that, but I mean, I think the, the Oscar, the governing body of the Oscars has definitely made it into a story with this, this ruling, which I, I mean, the people who are opposed to this, I I know Charlton Heston's son uh, said like compared it or said that it was an Orwellian uh, and and possibly illegal well, and action. Yeah. And I really like, I mean, if you look at these terms, it's if you haven't been uh, active in the past 10 years, then it's not you're totally out, but it comes up for like consideration that mm-hmm. you're out. And then if you have worked for 30 years in the industry, so if you have made a career in the industry, then you're in for life. If you've been nominated, then you're in for life. And if if you become, I believe, an emeritus is what they're they're calling right. it, then you still get all the other perks. You just don't get to vote. So I think, you know, I think that is a perfectly like reasonable sort of solution. Yeah, I agree. It's I agree. It's reasonable. I think that the controversy and then the response have both been exaggerated. Would be my mm-hmm. would be my and argument. I, it's not Orwellian, nor is it uh, ageist or racist, or on the flip side, nor is it. Uh, irrelevant. It's one of those things. I think the the key here. I just mentioned the word irrelevant. I think the key here is this is less about race and more about relevance. The Oscars, even before the Oscars, so white controversy have been trying to retain viewers, retain mm-hmm. people's interest, and they you know this kind of goes back to the Dark Knight thing of adding ten nominees because a popular right. picture wasn't nominated. They're just trying to figure out what the Oscars are in the 21st century whenever this is very much an industry event. Right. No, exactly. And, you know, I, I just said that this was a reasonable solution, although I'm, I'm going to backtrack on that now and say I don't think it really is a solution because ultimately saying we're going to change what the voting membership is doesn't change what is made. And I think that's the bigger that's the bigger thing that I intended to get at that I totally mm-hmm. kind of left out in the, in that first bit is there. I, I mean, I feel like there are not particularly if you compare to something like television right now, there's not as much, much diversity in Hollywood movies as there is on television. And so it's one of those things that when you come to the end of the year and there's only a handful of movies to even pick out for, you know, for, uh, holding up and saying, oh, well, this diverse pick didn't get, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a problem in and of itself. Yeah. And it may not even be and, that good, but, and you only have a handful to choose from. That's and, a good point. And, and so it's, I think the problem goes not, you know, it, it shouldn't be attacked from necessarily voting time. It should be looked at as, as something for, if, if you're trying to actually create a solution to this for what's getting greenlit, who's getting hired, those sorts of things. That's, that's where you actually, if you actually solve this quote unquote diversity problem. And I think the, the Academy's goal, which they announced back in November was something like, um, bringing women in, um, uh, Academy voter women or Academy member women up to like 47% from gosh, I want to say they're in like the thirties by 2020. So this is something they've been talking about, but I don't know how you do that without 
giving them jobs and allowing, you know, changing uh, the pictures being made. Yeah. Well, and it, and that's a good point because it, it wouldn't even be completely arbitrary because straight out of Compton did very, very well. Creed did well. These movies mm-hmm. are making money. Yeah. So it's not a matter of just making diverse pictures just for the sake of making diverse pictures. There's actually an audience out there for them that, um, so I think that's a wonderful point is point your ire in a different direction, not at the Academy, but at the industry itself. Yeah. And so it's kind of a part two to your argument, I think there's two solutions. One, there's us in the audience and in the journalism in the journalism field who aren't in the industry. Remember that this is an industry event. It's not like the World Series and the NBA Finals, wherever you're culling down and truly the best against the best. You can't do that in this because it's all subjective. Mm-hmm. So just okay. remember, this is the industry. So, so event. to that, what do you think of the industry people within the industry people like jada pinkett smith will smith michael moore saying they're going to boycott now i mean yeah that's that's absolutely they're right yeah but what do you do you think that's as effective as if they showed up and they actually voiced their opinion you know well it's one of those things i think at this point it's one of those things sometimes the people who talk the most get ignored the most as a consequence for instance michael moore I don't think anyone My, listens to yeah, him. Yeah, Michael Moore is Michael Moore's probably a bad but, example, yeah, but he is but, but he do, but he does that. But at the same time, it seemed to work in this instance. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If you protest everything that people are it's the the boy who cried wolf, people are gonna quit listening to you. But in this instance it it effect it was effective and it worked. But to your point, I think they should have pointed their ire in the other way. And not just in the pictures that are being made, but the the Academy Awards is very much politics. It, like I said, it's Absolutely. not the best of the yeah. best. And so you mentioned the Weinsteins a second ago. Why aren't people protesting Universal not putting up more of a fight, so to speak, for straight out of Compton? Mm-hmm. Why aren't they going after Warner Brothers and saying, why didn't you guys put more momentum behind Creed or Ryan Coogler or Michael B. Jordan? That That's a very fair question that I honestly hadn't even thought about. But that's really – I mean when it comes down to Oscar voting, like it, it is the you know the handshakes and the – uh, those little things that I mean, that's why Weinstein movies always get nominated, with the exception of this year. Yeah, so play some politics. I mean, yeah. one one makes some more the more diverse pictures because there is an audience out there for it, and then two, once they're made, put a little bit more momentum behind it, and then they'll get nominated. That's that I'd say that's a pretty solid solution. And then also just kind of keep things in perspective. It's the Academy Awards. It's not culture at large necessarily. It's just it's an industry event in an industry town, and these are the pictures they decided to praise for good or bad and every year we always have our problems with it that's how it always goes well ladies and gentlemen that's the perspective of two midwestern white dudes on what's going on with the hollywood academy awards if you have a different perspective we'd love to hear it email us at hello at war starts at midnight.com in the meantime stick around as we review a picture that was nominated for an oscar the revenant did it deserve it find out next the proper thing to do would be to finish him off quick he's to be cared for as long as necessary i understand What happened? We did what we had to do. He was buried right. All I had was my boy. And he took him from me, you understand?
There's something about these winter months that makes men do crazy things. We can't seem to get away from reviewing films about folks attempting to kill one another amidst a snowy frontier. Last time, it was The Hateful Eight. This time, it's The Revenant, a movie inspired by the actual tale of a 19th century fur trapper named Hugh Glass, who is left for dead by his compatriots following a vicious bear attack. The film boasts a solid cast, including the first reunion of Tom Hardy and Leonardo DiCaprio since Inception. Hardy plays John Fitzgerald, a fellow fur trapper who leaves DiCaprio's Hugh Glass for dead, buried alive in a shallow grave. Through sheer willpower and an ability to belly crawl that rivals Jordan Belfort hopped up on a really great batch of lewds, Glass embarks on a journey to Fort Kiowa in search of civilization and revenge. The Revenant is the apparent frontrunner for the Academy Awards, with 12 nominations, including Best Actor, Leonardo DiCaprio, Best Supporting Actor, Tom Hardy, Best Cinematography, Emmanuel Lubezki, Best Director, Alejandro González Iñárritu, and of course, Best Picture. So Hunter, I'm curious. Iñárritu and Lubezki won big last year with Birdman. Unless your predictions have changed in the past two weeks, we already know you expect DiCaprio, Lubezki, and Iñárritu to deliver acceptance speeches on Oscar night this year. So my question to you this time is simple. Are they deserving of such a claim? You know, Chris, this picture wasn't really a roundhouse kick to the face of awesomeness. But in answer to your inquiry about is this worthy of, I think it, I still think it an inevitable best picture at all is yes, I think so. It's while I haven't seen the other nominees, there's I doubt there's another one in the batch that really looks like a best picture as much as The Revenant does. I I don't know. I would I would disagree with that on probably Spotlight. Spotlight. Spotlight Spotlight seems like and I've said this before, but it seems like the type of movie that uh, an academy would get behind. Uh, It's a somewhat political movie. It's some somewhat activist movie, but it's the best form of that. Like it's it's not there have been so many movies that have actually won in the past, you know, something like Crash Mm -hmm. that have been much worse at at pulling it off. And I I think uh, Spotlight is a, it's a really solid movie. Well, then actually that what's then in many ways, uh, the Academy kind of the race may be even more exciting because you've got the Academy's two kind of predilections competing against each other. Mm -hmm. You've got their tendency towards epic movies with powered by a single really powerful performance and then you've got you know their tendency for self-righteousness and so you have self-righteousness versus uh epic and i think in that contest having not seen spotlight again it's all politics but i think the revenant when when it comes down to oscar voting time people are just going to look at the revenant and say this is the best picture winner and and i agree i think it was i think it was a really good movie it reminded me in many ways and it's been compared to this on box office mojo for instance uh to gladiator in this okay. feel, in this feels gladiator esque, and so I think what we're probably going to wind up talking about is the revenge aspect of this, because the revenge in this did not remind me of the Hateful Eight. I would say the the Hateful Eight was a revenge fantasy, whereas this was more of a retribution epic, and there is a difference. And I like the latter; the former is what disturbs me. Okay, I'm you know I I don't even know what to say about this movie. I don't hate it. I don't. My feelings aren't even as strong about it as they were about the Hateful Eight, but. I also didn't love it. I I really didn't love it. Like it felt like like Lubeski's photography is beautiful. Um the the cast overall is really solid. Like I I like Tom Hardy, I like DiCaprio, I like the kid whose name I can't remember. Um he was in I think We Are the Millers. Um it, overall it's pretty good and then the you know the indigenous cast as well that um are kind of the the B story kind of mm-hmm. intersecting with this. Um well, then actually, it's, how about this? Do you think that this is a movie that thought it was better than it turned out to be? 
Yeah, maybe a little bit. Yeah, there maybe. was. I agree. I think there's a little bit of that. Um, in this movie. And, and that's that's the thing is I think this is a really solid, uh, a really solid story, a really interesting revenge story, a really interesting story about um, about revenge, but also about race and about these other things that uh, I you've seen pop up in Lubeski's career. And um, I'm thinking of something like Itu Mama Tambien and in. Um, in Yuritu's career, sometimes well, sometimes not so much in the well being something like Amoris Peros, the not so much being something like Babel. Um, but it, it just feels like they, I can tell they endured a lot on screen. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no questioning that, but ultimately it feels like a boring way to tell a really compelling story to me. And that's that, that was there, there are flourishes that I, I enjoyed, but overall, like I found myself kind of bored. That, that's a, that's an interesting point. Do you think that that's a consequence of the length, or I, do you think there just wasn't enough to? The, I'm reminded of Roger Ebert's comment regarding I, Pearl Harbor, where he said shoving a uh, a two hour movie <laughs> into three hours. Did it feel like that? I, you know, it didn't. Maybe maybe a little bit, but it wasn't so much the length as it was the the execution of things. The way like as beautiful as it was, it felt like the the camera wasn't in the right place a lot of the times, or, I mean, I think the, the unbroken take thing, while we talked about it on our very first episode, like it felt like it worked in Birdman and didn't like draw too, too much attention to itself. It even invented this, this new thing of like passage of time without breaking, you know, in a, in a cut. Um, and this, it just felt like, Oh, look, we figured out, you know, how to, how to do these uh, epic, you know, block, block these epic scenes in the snow. And so we're going to do them mm-hmm. because we can. And I mean, once again, looking back at their careers, I think Lubeski has done this very well throughout his career. And, you know, in stuff like tree of life in particularly Itumama Tambien, which is uh, there, there's some gorgeous shots of just kind of flowing in and out of buildings and in back rooms and stuff without, without breaking. And it was always interesting. This, it felt like I could feel the lack of cuts, which is never really a great thing. Right, exactly. Um, actually, maybe the best way for me to describe it is, uh, I'll use a Rocky quote, their heart isn't in it. This fi- mm-hmm. this felt like mm-hmm. a film that was very technically marvelous. You you can tell that the people making these are all very, very talented, very knowledgeable, but at the same time, it didn't feel like their heart was truly in this movie. Yeah. And this is a movie that in order to be great, it needs to feel like they really wanted to make it. And so... B- I, I really can't put my finger on what it was lacking, and that's all I can say is it, it just it didn't feel like they were making a film they wanted to make. Can we? Do you think we could blame all of this on the uh, executive producer Brett Ratner? Is that possible? You know, it's one of those things. His movies are pretty soulless, and I would say <laughs> that for a movie called The Revenant, which look it up, it means a spirit. Right. This movie kind of lacked a soul. It, mm-hmm. it had technical execution, it had technical excellence, but it just didn't have a heart. Um, I'm reminded of a story about that I actually read in a Roger Ebert review about this young man who was apparently a very virtuoso pianist. And so he played this very difficult piece and his teacher said, okay, you know the notes, now play the music. This felt like a film in which they were playing the notes, but they didn't know the music. Yeah, I, I that's that's a very good way to put it. It just, I mean, I, I think if you're, if we want to, let's, let's segment it a little bit. So um, let, can we talk about the acting a little yeah, bit? Let's, I think, let, let's start with the biggie. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, the acting for the most part shines like mm-hmm. Leo. It's, it's the sort of role that you take to try to win an Academy award. And it's, um, 
you know, it's showy, but it's also not, you know, Pacino, Huin, and Han everywhere either. Well, do you think that if he had been nominated four times before without winning that this this would be sacrosanct, that he that it would be inevitable that he would win? Um, I mean, this year, honestly, I I mean, there's no one in the running against him that I can really compete. Yeah, that I'm I'm behind. Well, let me verbalize it another way. If this was his second or third nomination, do you think that it would be a given? I mean, I thought it was a given on The Departed. I okay, thought it was, yeah. you know, I, I've thought it was a given in the past. So um, this is, I think this is a perfect storm for him of it's a given again. And uh, he, it's not a strong race this year. Yeah, exactly. He's, an, I, I wouldn't want much like the movie. It's good, but it's not transcendent. However, my favorite part of this movie was actually the performance by his co-star, Tom Hardy. Yeah. Who... He, it's one of those things I've seen him in plenty of pictures. He's always playing somebody different and whoever he's playing, it's always right. You he's, know what I mean? He is sort of the Gary Oldman of his generation. That, yeah. And that's as, a good comparison as opposed to a Johnny Depp um, because they, they kind of do the same thing, but Johnny Depp takes it. And we've talked about this in the past and not always, but a lot of times takes it in the wrong direction. Whereas Oldman, like you can, and I, I feel this is exactly the same with Hardy. You can see Hardy in a few pictures, and if you don't, if you didn't know who he was, you might not realize it's the same guy. This is going to sound like an absurd analogy, but one's a legitimate chameleon, and the other is just a iguana with a sombrero. <laughs> it's still an iguana. <laughs> it's still an iguana, and Johnny Depp would qualify Bravo. as the iguana with a sombrero. Bravo! <laughs> but anyway, um, just the looks on Tom Hardy's face when he looks like mm-hmm. he's going to stab somebody or he's going to punch someone in the face or he's just going to snap. And you've I've seen that look in real people's faces, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, where it's just something's not right there and it's all performance. Yeah. So I was very impressed by him. in this. No, he he was great. I I cannot wait until the Tom Hardy, Joaquin Phoenix, mumbling cop, buddy cop movie. It would need subtitles. It's, it's going to be it's going to be great, though. <laughs> it definitely needs subtitles. Um, that said, I still want Sylvester Stallone to win Best Supporting Actor. Mm-hmm. But Tom Hardy was my favorite part of this picture. Yeah, I I would probably agree with that. I I mean, he's he's the one that really I mean, as as much as I've praised DiCaprio for this, like it's not it feels like a Leo performance right. you know it, it didn't feel like anything i i kind of knew what i was getting going in he may have he surprised me here or there but mm-hmm. i mean he eats uh, actual what bison liver but uh that yeah this movie is his raging bull he eats bison yeah. liver he loses a lot of weight he crawls inside a horse you know so yeah. it's one of those things he's doing everything he can to win that oscar but hardy hardy's just he he's fascinating to to watch on screen it's kind of Watching Hardy on screen is kind of for me like watching Greta Gerwig on screen. Every time, I just I, I cannot look away. You know, I wouldn't have made that comparison, but that that's fair. He, he, they both Tom Hardy and Greta Gerwig. Whenever they're doing something, they are that thing. Mm-hmm. And I would actually mm-hmm. give a little bit more praise to Tom Hardy just because there's more diversity in right. his output. But he always is, and I admire that. And then whenever you compare his performance to Leonardo DiCaprio's, both very good. But Leo is the movie star, and then Tom Hardy is the actor. Yeah, he's he's the working man of of the you know the equation here. Mm-hmm. And then whereas Leonardo DiCaprio is the the charismatic lead who's carrying the picture on the back, but Tom Hardy's the one who's filling it with what little soul there is. It's coming from him, I would say. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of impossible. You brought this up in your in your opening bit, and it's kind of impossible not to do this. I wonder what would have happened if we if this movie came out another year, but to compare it to hateful eight, mm-hmm. um, we had more to talk about the hateful eight just because it engendered a lot of emotions with this. But 
I mentioned that I saw this as a retribution slash justice epic compared to Hateful Eight, which is a revenge fantasy. A revenge fantasy is delighting in the pursuit of violence and revenge, whereas a retribution epic is saying, no, this destroys you in many ways, mm-hmm. and that the ultimate execution of it, it's it's like we talked about with Hateful Eight, it's eye for an eye, it's not eye for a head blowing up and having a great time. But there's also actual thought put into the revenge mm-hmm. here, and and you're, you're essentially the entire movie – or at least the the main plot of the movie is this uh, story of a guy who is stewing with it his entire 200 mile trek to civilization to find the man who left him and versus the hateful eight. And, you know, since our discussion, I've, I've thought about it and I don't even know what there really is revenge for in the hateful eight. You know, it's not other than other than Samuel Jackson and Smithers. Mm -hmm. That's the only one that really feels like revenge. The rest of it just feels like biased or you, you have, you know, you have something that I want. So I will murder you. Well, yeah, it's, it's like Um, they're committing revenge to commit revenge, even if they have nothing to, they have nothing. And and so I, I almost, it's almost wrong to call it revenge because that lessens what revenge is. Like there's, there's in, in most cases, not a whole lot for, um, for them to be, you know, enacting the violence on the other person. I think that that was ultimately what was so, uh, unsettling about it. Um, versus here, I mean, it's, you're, I, I agree with everything you, you say there. And and that's kind of the th- my struggle with it is I do feel like uh, the story, the story I really like, the story of um, of Glass making his way back. Also, the story of the I forget the name of the the tribe looking for their daughter. Um, that story I, I really like and, and find interesting and the way the way that it's woven in, like it's one of those things that it could have felt token, especially coming from someone like Inuritu who has just shoved in. Um, you know, things of like trying to bring this metaphysical mm-hmm. connection um, together. Uh, I, I like that story. He does ultimately go for some weird metaphysical stuff with, um, did you notice there's another meteor here? No. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. That's the thing. I actually thought of Birdman the yeah. second I saw that. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's another meteor. There's a lot of these flashbacks and dreams, which kind of, you know, reminded me of both inception and shutter Island. Like there's this uh, apparently DiCaprio cannot escape roles or he's having dreams of a lost wife or loved one. I Iran- And you know what? Now that you bring it up, but he's not married. All he has is just a, a bunch of supermodel girlfriends. So maybe he's acting out that that uh, paternal slash husband desire to have a wife and family through his films. My my point there, though, is it feels very injury to um, to include something like that. But it also having seen it a few times from the exact same actor in the past. It also, you know, it's going to be, it felt like diminishing returns for me. It didn't, it didn't do much for me. And that's ultimately like what a lot of this, like, um, I intellectually like the story as a whole more than I enjoyed experiencing it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's probably going to win the Oscar, I think, Mm -hmm. and it's quote deserving, but I don't think it'll stand the test of time. I will ask your question. Do you think it warrants such a claim? Um, I mean, my answer would be no, but that's, I, I guess I need to quantify that with like, I generally don't think the best picture deserves exactly. best picture. So, well, well and I think whatever. the critical reception has been fairly tempered. It's, they're saying, you know, it's a good movie, but almost like what we've say, been saying in many ways, it seems like a best picture that's going to limp across the finish line, mm. not sprint. And, and I will say I, you know, expressed a lot of 
sadness that that Deacons has never Roger Deacons has never won an Academy Award. He's up again this year, I think, for like the fifth or sixth or seventh year in a row at this point. And um, I think after seeing it, I do think Chivo is going to take it. Emmanuel Lubeski is going to take Academy Award for cinematography, and it's it's gorgeous. It really is. Um, I ironically, uh, you know, a film that was shot on digital, albeit I think. 50% of it or more like 40, 45% of it was shot on a 65 millimeter Ari Alexa. So that for those of you who don't speak camera nerd, um, that is a large format sensor versus, I mean, comparable to something like what Tarantino shot on, but he shot film the same format, uh, the same size format digitally. I think this looks much more cinematic than anything in Hateful Eight did. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what, Chris, maybe Deacons will eventually have his DiCaprio moment and then you can you can have a little tear of joy oh, go man. down your face. That'll, that's that's when there will be redemption for me in, in the Oscars. That'll be your that'll be your revenge against yeah. the Academy Awards. Um all right, Chris, you mentioned the metaphysical aspect of this film. So I'm hoping that your that your suggestion for a beer has a really high point so that I can go into some sort of metaphysical hallucinatory state whenever I drink it and watch this film again. Well, I think I might have something that can actually help you out then. Uh, my pick for The Revenant is Old Rasputin by North Coast Brewing Company, and it is a Russian imperial stout. So your wish is granted. This comes in at about 9% ABV. Uh, and, you know, there's nothing better for my money than a stout in a nice, cold, wintry day. So I figure, you know, if, if you're going to endure a movie that is just nearly three hours out in the cold, um, with a beard, no less. Why not enjoy an old Rasputin, which is, you know, after all, named after a man with one of the most epic beards of all time. You know, Chris, I kind of envision you crawling across the snowy Wyoming tundra <laughs> with this beer in your hand and being perfectly content, even if you have to eat elk liver while you're doing so. Does it pair well with elk liver? That's what I want to know. It's, uh, you know, I bet it does. I bet it really does. I mean, Rasputin probably would have uh, been just fine with raw elk liver. Well, that's terrific. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you don't have to travel across the snowy Wyoming tundra yourself to see The Revenant. It's currently playing at a cineplex near you. If you've seen us, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail in your favorite Tom Hardy voice. I don't care what movie it's from, but it's got to be Tom Hardy. The correct answer is Bane, but whatever. Give us a call at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around for some listener feedback. And then during special features, we'll be discussing Leo, the last movie star.
Hunter, we'll get to uh, getting loquacious about Leo in just a moment. But before we do, we have a listener voicemail um, from a, a listener named Mark who wants to harp on Harrison. Let's have a listen. Uh, guys, I am just calling to report that uh, I just listened to your Star Wars The Force Awakens review, and you guys are totally wrong. I, I, I will agree with you guys that, that Harrison Ford uh, played Han Solo very well. He was in that movie about 50% too much. Leia was completely unnecessary, not to mention horrible in everything she was in. I don't trust Mark Hamill going forward in any sort of gravitas acting ability uh, to be the new Obi-Wan. Why couldn't we have just not started fresh? We could have... That all, that all happened in the past, but we were going to go on and make some new adventures. And so I, I am not only of the opinion as a week goes on that I did like The Force Awakens, I am offended by The Force Awakens. Okay, so this is... Uh... This is pretty strong feedback. He's not he's not just, you know, didn't like it. He's offended. No, I, I admire his passion. It's one of those things he's offended by it, but at the same time on the other spectrum, that's what I am. On the positive spectrum, mm-hmm. I am inspired and uh happy with it. Yeah. It just truly truly enthralled with it. And and that's that's sort of where, you know, you know how I felt going into this. I mean, I don't know how many times on the show I said I'm really worried about the original Trinity being mm-hmm. in in the film. And I liked them like they I thought they used them to exactly the right extent. Um, and it was they, you know, they set the stakes right for the next two movies going forward. Absolutely. And to answer his criticism about Harrison Ford being in it too much. One, from a commercial perspective, this movie's not getting made absent Harrison Ford as yeah. Han Solo. This movie's not becoming the highest grossing domestic release of all time without Harrison Ford as Han Solo. And. Just the film itself needed him. I'm. It's one of those things. When people saw A New Hope, did they say, you know what, Alec Guinness, that guy from Lawrence of Arabia, he's just in this movie too darn much. It needs to be more <laughs> about these people we've never seen before. What no? What they said is, you know, he's great as this mentor figure, and then he's passing the proverbial torch slash lightsaber off to the next generation. Yeah, and that's what happened here with Harrison Ford and the original Trinity. So I, I really disagree with. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I love. I, I know Mark personally. I, I love him. We actually we got into a much more heated debate about this uh, afterwards. And uh, he, he sent me this link to an article from the Federalist called how to fix the force awakens when with one simple trick. And this is by Ben Dominic, correct? Correct. And uh, it, I, I like this, you know, it's um, it's actually not quite a, it's not nearly as angry or um, upset as, as Mark is, but he seemed to, he presented it as a like, why couldn't we have done this? And basically what, what Dominic sets up is that you, you have the entire film play out the way it does. So you have the characters that that you have, everything goes the same way. Um, except in the third act, instead of defeating the star killer base before it blows up the, uh, it's not the resistance base, the resistance base is blown up and then the star killer base is blown up. So you actually have, um, you have some loss there. You actually set the stakes where it's it's a kind of a dark victory. Because Mark, when we spoke, he was very angry as well about the Star Killer base and about it being a third Death Star. And you don't need a third Death Star. You didn't need a second Death Star. And I I agree with that. Um, I do think uh, I do think this article posits a pretty interesting idea of what could have been. And you know, we, we're getting into fan theory stuff here. Exactly. And and I think my overarching comment about that, I'm a big fan of Ben Dominich. I read a lot of his articles, and then I also listen to his Federalist podcast, which, you know, it's not a nerd podcast. It's more of a 
conservative right-leaning libertarian s podcast but reading this article i think he makes a lot of good points the point i really liked was him saying the donald gleason character should have been played by an older actor who was a veteran of yeah, hoth yeah. and indoor that would have been absolutely awesome um i know gary oldman's wanted to be involved in star wars for a long time going back to general grievous that would yeah. have been a great role for him but in any event what i love about genre pictures and we saw this comparing our revenant review to our hateful eight review the thing about genre pictures is that there's just so much to talk about beyond the movie itself. You, If you really enjoy a genre picture or you really hate a genre picture, you inevitably start rewriting it and redirecting mm-hmm. it in your head and then in conversations with friends and frenemies. And so that that's just – that's my overarching comments. I just love the commentary and the back and forth that you get with genre pictures. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, I guess I'm I, – I just – I'm happy with where we are because I thought Star Wars, there was so much potential for it to go so wrong. And so could it have been better? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do not share Mark's, uh, Mark's anger here though. Um, I, I'll link to this article in the show notes. It's a, it's a pretty good read. I, I highly recommend it. Well, maybe Mark should just give in to his anger <laughs> and give in to the dark side of the force. But whether you agree with us or disagree with us, whether you love to picture, or hated a picture, we love listener feedback. So by all means, please get a hold of us. Now, what do you say we talk a little bit about uh, Battle Leo? Terrific. Chris, I'm going to be Bill Paxton and you're going to be Gloria Stewart as Rose. Oh, uh, what? Take my hand, Chris. We're going back to Titanic. Oh, God. 1997. The ship that sank to the bottom of the sea inspired the film that sailed into the stratosphere. Titanic won a record-setting 11 Oscars and became the highest-grossing film ever, largely thanks to its charismatic young lead, Leonardo DiCaprio. If you're like me, you hated Leo. Not disliked. Hated. I actively loathed this sissy pretty boy who seemed so effortlessly to have every sentient being with two X chromosomes from ages 7 to 97 salivating. Jealous much? But if you're also like me, then your 10-year-old self would be shocked to discover that DiCaprio would become one of your favorite actors. So what happened? Quality. Leo focused on quality, not quick bucks. Bravely turning down no-brainer blockbuster roles like Anakin Skywalker in Star Wars or Spider-Man in, well, Spider-Man. Instead, Leo focused on making films with the world's finest filmmakers, including five pictures and counting with the greatest director alive, Martin Scorsese. Now, Leo is not only one of our best actors, he's also the most bankable, the last movie star. On the surface, he is everything we claim to hate about Hollywood, a pampered limousine liberal with a lifestyle of flying private jets to climate change conferences in Switzerland, then lounging his dad bod on the beach in Ibiza with his army of supermodel girlfriends. So jealous. Despite this, Leo is a true movie star, an actor you will buy a ticket to go see because you trust him to deliver the goods. And he just about always delivers. Chris, first, did you share my loathing of Leo in the late 90s, and what changed your mind? Second, is DiCaprio's decision to focus exclusively on great scripts and prestige filmmakers repeatable? If so... Why does it seem like he's the only one doing it? Okay, so for the first, absolutely. I thought he was trash. And I mean, honestly, I looking back on those, I really don't think he's that good in Titanic or, no, it, or a movie that came out uh, right around the same time, uh, which I would like to talk to talk about a little bit. Do you know where I'm going here? You're, you're, the Man in the Iron Mask. The Man in the Iron Mask. He's so bad in that movie. And I hope we can talk about that a little bit later in in the discussion of you know his his career. Um, I, I just I'm really validated that you shared because one of those <laughs> things we didn't know each other in middle school. But yeah, yeah. we are. I think all 
10 year olds were connected yeah, unified there, by a hatred there, of leo there was i i think you're absolutely right there was certainly a jealousy there because it was just it was he was the biggest thing ever for for uh, you know, women of a certain age, young, young women of a certain age. Yeah. You go to the grocery store, you look at comic books and then, but you look over and then all of the teeny bopper, not just teeny bopper, but every single magazine had his picture over it. Yeah. And you're just trying to read your comic book and yet he's staring at you wherever you go. To your second question. Um, I would say yes, but not in mass scale, I guess, because ultimately Hollywood is an industry like doesn't matter, you know, how you want to try to box it into like, oh, well, but we have, you know, we've got independent films, we've got this and we've got that. Like, ultimately, you got to sell tickets, you got to get butts and seats. And so there's just always going to be stuff that's not great, but made to sell, made to Michael Bay is a great example. I imagine, you know, Leo's never going to do a Michael Bay movie, but Michael Bay movies always make bank. But, Always clean. But at the same time, so does Leo, so do Leonardo DiCaprio movies, because like Inception, for instance, I mean, right. that, that did very well. And that's in many ways due to him. In, Inception is, I think, a, a perfect sort of point to talk about. Like Inception is a movie that going into it, I was really worried about it. Like it was a movie I was really excited for, but I also knew that it was a, you know, it was an expensive original property, which is something you don't get very often anymore. And so I was, I was worried that it was going to flop because I think the going, going in the, not so much critical, but just like the, the media speculation of of it was like, it, it might, it might be a bomb. Um, and he did, he did after all carry, I mean, you got to also see it as it's Leo and the guy who just made the dark. Exactly. But well, here, here would be my argument is in addition to his talent as an actor by having discipline, that's the word I would use to describe DiCaprio more than talent is discipline by turning down those, those no brainer parts and focusing on good scripts. The audience subliminally knows that he will only pick good material. And mm-hmm. so if you're looking for a good movie, even if it's something out there, if you're looking for a good movie, you can trust him. Do you think that that's even if it's subliminal, do you think that's what people think when they go to a DiCaprio movie? I mean, I think he's definitely a he's one of the few people who you still say, oh, it's or the the general public still says, I mean, I I all the time am, am like, oh, it's the new Greta Gerwig movie or it's a new whatever. And half the time, you know, my wife will be like, who, what? Um, but for general public, he is one of the few people who it's like, it's another, it's the new Leonardo DiCaprio movie. The Revenant for most people, I think was the new Leonardo DiCaprio movie, even with a director who just won best director and best picture last year. Well, and even with a storyline that's three hours long and not exactly pleasant and it opened high and it's continued to stay high. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing is. Just about anyone can open a Transformers picture, but he's able to do The Revenant, which, again, is not exactly right. palatable to to a mass audience. And so so let's go back in time a little bit, Chris. Say Leonardo DiCaprio decides to be Anakin Skywalker or Peter Parker, either or. One, do you think that that would have been made those pictures, either of those pictures better? And two, do you think that would have done anything for his career? One, uh, I mean, no, you're, if we're, if we're talking, especially if we're talking attack of the clones, no, just not possible. Um, it's there, there are many things that just couldn't have been overcome by that would, that probably would have just felt like a man in the iron mask in space, honestly. (laughs) And then, and then Peter Parker, um, I don't know. It's not quite the character that you get out of Leo because he is, he's an actor who generally plays, um, 
kind of these dark characters. These it's it's the the thing that I would worry about him with, especially with someone like Sam Raimi, is getting the humor right. I'm not honestly sure if he would be capable of of pulling that off. Well, and also 20 years ago or so, however long it's been, he was too pretty to play, mm-hmm. you know, the nerdy Peter Parker character. I, I, I just realized that I didn't actually fully answer your first question, which is when did I uh, finally get Yes, exactly. Get I was him. just getting ready to go back to that. Yeah. When did the hatred end? Um, it, it was a little movie that I really love and I think is a I, – I believe most people look at it as lesser Spielberg. But uh, Catch Me If You Can, he's really, really great in that movie. It, it, it's a great movie in general, but he's um, he's playing a bunch of different characters because he's playing Frank Abagnale, who's this young kid who starts uh, kind of doing small con jobs and they get bigger and bigger. And he's he's constantly playing different different characters, different people, because he's on the run and he's, you know, conning folks up, up to, you know, falling in love with a, a young Amy Adams. Well, and I think it's worth pointing out that Frank Abagnale was from Tulsa, ergo, mm-hmm. you could say Tulsa, Oklahoma saved Leonardo DiCaprio's career. Because ironically, well, I think I think technically Frank Abagnale came to Tulsa after all of that. But but still, you can say that I I think that that it's a bit of a stretch. Where you it's, can make that it's case. It's a bit of a stretch, but I, but I guess so. What what about for you? What was um, it? I would agree with that. You can say that after Titanic, because I don't believe uh, I think. Catch Me If You Can came out in the early 2000s, like 2001, I, I, two, something I think like it's, that. I think it's two, but it, it, yeah, it's right but around But the there. point being, it was five years after Titanic. So right. except for The Beach, which I haven't seen and didn't do very well, he kind of disappeared. And I almost thought, oh, thank – that's mm-hmm. what I was thinking is I thought, thank God that guy went away because uh. I was so done with Leonardo DiCaprio. And then he – I believe Gains of New York came out first and then Catch Me If You Can. I can't remember the exact order, but they were – Oh, no, you know what? It was Catch Me If You Can and then Gangs of New York because I, I recently rewatched Gangs of New York and then was reading some stuff on it. Um, they were supposed to – Gangs of New York kept getting pushed back from production, like scheduling issues. And then it came up to – I think it was supposed to be like a spring or a summer release. And then it got pushed back to the fall. Catch Me If You Can was coming out that fall. So then Gangs of New York got pushed back to the next year. Okay, well – so, so I think it was 2002 and then 2003. 2003 exactly. Okay. Cause, okay. Yeah. I remember then now, but the point is, is they kind of came in synchronous and yeah. I thought, okay, well he's back. And I wasn't really bothered he's by He's back it. and different and holy crap. Exactly. He can act. And then, so saw catch me if you can thought that was, you know, really, really enjoyed it, but I wasn't sold yet. Mm-hmm. Saw aviator in the theaters and thought, wow, this is, this is really good. Mm-hmm. And then by the, before departed came out, I was actively excited mm-hmm. to see the departed and actively excited that he was in it was my kind of journey can can you think of another time other than the aviator and uh the revenant when he's roaming around naked because is it only when he's emaciated and has a really ugly wasn't beard? wasn't he wasn't he uh in the nude in the wolf of wall street he probably is you're probably right yeah i, I can't really describe <laughs> there's the a scene. lot of I, there's I a lot of skin this, in that yeah movie. i can't describe the scene i'm talking about on a family podcast <laughs> but yes he was indeed uh without okay. clothes in that show okay let's let's also do a little bit of uh retroactive casting he was not able to do this picture because he chose to do titanic instead he turned down the role of Dirk Diggler in Boogie Nights, which eventually went to Mark Wahlberg. He has said since then that he regrets that decision. Is well, he right to have? Of course he does. Well, of course he says that. Do you think he's well? Do you think he's full of it? And do you think he was right to? Or he's right to say he regrets it. Full of it? How? Full of it in in denying it in the first place? Do you think he's just saying that to come across like an artist? Because he's run away from Titanic in many ways. He mm. rolls his eyes at mentions of Titanic. I mean, I don't know. Honestly, I'm not sure that he would have been capable of pulling off Dirk Diggler 
at the time. Like you compared him to what he was doing in the late nineties to what that role really required. I mean, maybe, maybe Paul Thomas Anderson could have gotten it out of him. He's a really great director working, you know, in his work with actors. He really, you know, pulls the performance that he wants. I mean, he gets a great Burt Reynolds performance in that movie. How often do you get that? Yeah. The film that's supposed to resurrect his career. Well, Um, but uh, I, you know, I think we're lucky that it, that it didn't go that way. I think he was not maybe not quite mature enough as an actor. I feel, I mean, this is all hypothetical. Well, so not even mature enough as an actor, just mature enough as, as kind of a persona, as a person, as a mm-hmm. character, because one, you get two great actors for the price of one, Mark Wahlberg and Leonardo DiCaprio for the way it turned out. But then also just rewatching Titanic. He seems extremely young. Yeah. And, and his performance is wooden in many ways. It's kind of a TV part, performance. Do you think part of it's that Dawson's Creek haircut, though? All the above, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's his voice, his mannerisms. He just, like I said, it seems like a, a Dawson's Creek mm-hmm. kind of performance. You know, it's interesting. I, I had not, you know, made this comparison, but there is, there's a real earnestness to the way that he plays that character. Mark Wahlberg is a guy who almost always plays an earnest character, but there's comparing those two, he, like... And I think DiCaprio has gotten out of that, but um, Wahlberg pulls it off much better than DiCaprio does. Much, much better. The earnest character? Yeah. Well, I think it, it, it comes more naturally to him. But yeah, I think Leo would have been a fool to to have not done Titanic or to – even like I said, I think he's full of it because Titanic – Whereas Avatar and then Star Wars are both the brand and the picture in the movie, mm-hmm. Titanic was in many ways him. You can't make a sequel to Titanic. Exactly, you it's... can't make a sequel to t- Titanic. It wasn't a. It wasn't meant to be as big as it was, and in many ways, like I said at the beginning, that's as a consequence of him. So to have that on your resume, even if you don't like the publicity that came afterwards, I mean he he's got something to brag about that a lot of people don't. I, I think you're absolutely right, and you know it may have also. You know, it it put him in in the eyes of ten year old boys. Cast him as you know uh, someone we disparaged, but uh, I imagine it also gave him a little padding. You know, the, the movie that did so well to maybe then become a little selective. With well, some of the yeah, stuff. actually, that's a great point because now that I think about it, you you brought up you know ten year old boys hating him. If he were to be Spider Man, a character we loved, or Anakin Skywalker slash Darth Vader, I don't think I would have been fine with that. At mm-hmm. you know. 14 or however old I was whenever that those pictures came out, I would have been like, no, to hell with this. Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio is not Spider-Man. That's BS. <laughs> well, and honestly, had he been Anakin Skywalker, it would have sealed his fate, I, I think, in, in some ways as like, oh, no, this guy I really, really, really hate. Interesting. Um, so another picture he turned down or rather not turned down, but it just it didn't wind up working out that came out around the same time was American Psycho. Hmm. He was actually supposed to have the Christian Bale part, and I believe at some point in time Oliver Stone was involved. Um, what wound up ha- yeah, exactly oh, that would have been that movie. Well, no. I may be making that up, but I think it, I do think Oliver Stone was supposed to be involved. But anyway, what wound up happening is the budget of the movie was something like five million, mm-hmm. and then his his salary was twenty million. So his salary was four times the budget of the movie, and so it fell apart. So. Post Titanic, Leonardo DiCaprio was probably in a place wherever he wanted to shock people. Mm-hmm. Do you think? What do you think American Psycho being in that would have done to his career? I, it's it's the type of character that he's drawn to. It's uh, what do you, what do I think it would have done to his career though? As like if from a public persona sort of mm-hmm. thing, I don't know. I it I think it could have still been a movie that sort of flew under the radar. You know, as a uh, people might talk about, oh, Leo, you know, he he did this little cute 
indie weird. See, uh, I, I disagree. I think it probably would have lot of, done lot it of, in. A lot of Brett Easton Ellis uh, talk. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's that's the th- running theme here. But I actually think that would have done him in, and he would have been an so? all-saran. Yeah, he would have been almost like a David Cassidy or Leif Garrett of the 90s of, hmm. oh, remember that guy when he was famous? I don't know. He was he was way bigger, though. Like, I mean, he... I don't know. I, I, don't, I think a I few don't think, bad decisions post-Titanic, that would have been it. But I don't think that would have single-handedly brought him down. I still also, though, don't think he could have outdone Christian Bale, what Christian Bale gave us either. Well, again, the Mark Wahlberg thing, you get two movie stars for the price of one, so I'm glad it turned out the way it did. Um, so let's let's just grab a few random post-us-liking Leo pictures. What's your favorite Leo movie? It You know, it might actually be Catch Me If You Can. All right. It, well, for, for Leo specifically i would say runner up to that would be the departed which i think i i like as a movie more overall Mm -hmm. but i don't necessarily think of it as a leo movie and i think matt damon kind of outdoes him in that that movie a, a bit like and i don't know when it became like uh the matt versus leo sort of like there there seems to be this discussion always in the ether of which one is is a better um, is a better actor. Let me ask this of you. If you had to choose between the two, like one of them can no longer act again, who would you go with? I would, I would say I like Matt Damon more. Okay. I, I do too. Just purely from a, like, I, I think he has larger output, but he also has a more diverse uh, choice of, of roles that he, he picks up. Well, and also maybe this is just the reptilian part of my brain, but I just like him better. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? But they, you're right to he compare is, them. He, they are like a yin and a yang of each other though, because I mean, look at the departed is is a perfect example of it. Like Matt Damon, even though he is the bad guy in that movie, he is the clean cut, squeaky. Like you kind, of, it's kind of hard to hate him, even though mm-hmm. you know you should. Versus Billy Costigan, the character that uh, that Leo plays, he even though he is the good guy, he is the the protagonist of the of the movie. Like everyone's giving him shit. It's. Uh, and and he just looks kind of ratty. He has Leo kind of has a ratty face. <laughs> part of part of that is that he can't grow facial hair, and when he tries to, it just grows so uneven and everything. And I, being a man with a beard, well, probably I was about have to a say, bias. I don't want there. I don't want to rip on people who cannot grow a full beard. Let's let's be fair here. Um, but, <laughs> I, I think you could do better than him, though. But uh, he just he has that like you want to look down on him a little bit. Um, like, <laughs> well, I think your beard bias may be playing. Speaking of reptilian part of your brain, yeah. even I think your beard bias may That's be playing. The Neanderthal part of my brain. Yes, exactly. I think that might be pain. A little, you would you would extract him from the cave. He couldn't uh-huh. be part of the tribe because yeah. he can't grow a beard. Um, but I would agree with uh, those choices in many ways. Um, I'm getting ready to say something controversial, given that he's probably going to win the Oscar. Do you think he's in a bit of a rut, albeit a very good rut, a very profitable rut, given we've talked about this with, with our review? It kind of feels like we've seen this performance before. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, maybe it's, uh, here's the thing that I'm, I'm not sure about. He, he has a specific sort of character that he always plays. He's getting older. Like, uh, my wife and I were watching an interview with him recently and she was like, how old is he? And looked it up and he's like 42. He's a bit of a rough 42. He's reaching that point where he's going to have to find that next transition in. Like, uh, he can't play these, he can't play a Jordan Belfort. Uh, much longer, right? You know, um, it, it's going to have to transition into someone who, not necessarily a sage character, but has a little more maturity or a little more like. Um, and I'm not sure he's found that yet. And I mean, I don't know. I I could easily see Scorsese giving him a role like that. Um, that that could be the that would be the obvious push 
um, in, you know, working with a director who he's comfortable with, but pushing him to a, another place. But I don't know if that, if that really happens. He did it with, with De Niro though. I, uh, it, the thing about that is I don't think that Martin Scorsese is necessarily capable of that anymore. He's he's much like Leonardo DiCaprio. They're consistently quality, but you're not going to get anything really different out of them right now. I don't know if that's true, though. I mean, think of what about something like Hugo? We could talk about Martin Scorsese forever. Um, okay. When Silence comes out, we'll talk all about Martin Scorsese. That, that's but, fair. But point that's being fair. is I, I'm not sure he's the director to do that with Leo. Okay. But I do agree with you that... I, I just meant more from like a... I don't know if he's going to take that leap with someone else. Like Scorsese would be the obvious choice to push him forward in that direction. Well, let, how about this question then? Rather than being with established directors who don't need him per se, which would you rather see? Would you rather see him continue down the path of established directors who don't need him, like do a Peter Jackson movie and a Coen Brothers movie and try and flick off the list of all the most important directors or which he could be interesting in a coen brothers movie although i could also see him being the type of like a nick cage the type of actor who they would work with once then never want to work with again yeah something like that go completely out there with him or so that's that's path a continue to do what he's done and go after the best of the best directors or path b is maybe do an up-and-coming indie director or maybe a second tier and i don't mean talent i mean as far as just mainstream right awareness like a nicholas winding refn or a david gordon green which path do you prefer? You know, I think it's the Coen brothers that are really sticking out to me. I shouldn't here, have said Coen brothers. Have said Coen brothers, but yeah, not Coen brothers specifically, just that idea, the A-listers. I would say I probably just personally would prefer the second because I think it would be ultimately more interesting. You probably run into a few weird fails or flops here and there. Um, and I, I also don't see it as something that he would be comfortable with um, branching out in that direction necessarily. Um but that's that's where my vote's going to go, I guess. Yeah, I'm in the same place as you is. The correct answer is the Coen brothers. But if we're choosing between <laughs> insert A-list director here and insert up and coming here, I think up and coming, he he needs to lend his credibility mm-hmm. and his commercial appeal, I think, to if he likes original voices, go after the directors that no one's ever heard of. I think that would be a more interesting path to take at this point. Let, let's close out with this. Uh, a rebuttal to that, though, is I imagine if he goes with an up and coming, he's going to become a producer. And then there could be, you know, a little bit of uh, control. He takes control over the voice. Of well, the then do you know who well. he becomes in that situation? Who? Tom f***ing Cruise. And that's a <laughs> wonderful position to be in. So, Leo, right. if that's what you want to do, go for it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Chris and I have discussed our relationship with Leonardo DiCaprio. We'd like to know a few things from you. One, did you hate him in 1997 as much as Chris and I did? Two, what changed your mind? And then three, where do you want to see him go next? You have a lot of things to digest about DiCaprio, but we'd love to hear them all. So please let us know at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Stick around for our really rad recommendations coming up next. So I set my sights on the open door. Should I take the low road? Probably take the long way home tonight. It's the only way I can think this through. Parents, they 
All right, Hunter, it's recommendation time again. I can't wait to hear your recommendation that I've never heard of before. Well, when thinking of an actor who Leonardo DiCaprio in many ways reminds me of, I actually have to go overseas and several decades ago, and that is Toshiro Mifune. Hmm. Toshiro Mifune is like Leo in that he's a very natural, almost, watching him is almost like watching a storm. It's like watching a weather pattern, a very violent weather, weather pattern. Very charismatic, and he, and he, even though he didn't always make great pictures, he chose wisely mm-hmm. in many cases. And so I'm going to pick a Toshiro Mifune picture that was actually not directed by Akira Kurosawa. Is from the 1960s and is called Samurai Rebellion. Uh, I think you kind of just need to come to this movie fresh, not know a whole lot about it. But in a nutshell, Tachiro plays an aging samurai who whose son offends the elders because the son refuses. I believe the the son refuses to marry the the tribal leader's daughter, and so he has to be put to death. Tachiro Mifune says, "Hell no!" And so he winds up having hundreds of samurai come and kill him, and then he has to battle all of them. I should mention that he's a master samurai like he always is. It sounds a little goofy, but it's it's absolutely excellent. There's a Criterion release of it. So that's Toshiro Mifune starring in Samurai Rebellion. You will not be disappointed. Wonderful. This sounds, this sounds great. This sounds right up my alley or right up Jake's alley. Okay, I have... I'm going to cheat a little bit. I've got two recommendations. Uh, first one, just because we, I figured we would talk about it and we didn't. The Man in the Iron Mask. Uh, this is a movie that is by no means good, but uh, it's a movie that is a, it's a really fun watch. It's particularly a really fun watch with friends. Like uh, it's the type of movie that like in college, uh, friends and I would watch it kind of the same way that we watch Batman and Robin in that it's just everyone get together and, and make fun of this thing, do do a round table sort of a a, a mystery science theater, sort Mm -hmm. of like everyone crack jokes at it, but it's, it's a weird movie. I don't know how this movie got made because it's, it's set. Well, Leonardo DiCaprio is how it got made. I I guess so. But you know, it's, it's essentially a, uh, a story about the three musketeers, but also this, uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio is the basic plot. Leonardo DiCaprio is the, twin of a prince i believe is that correct Mm -hmm. and um he's been imprisoned by his twin brother um or something i i you know he is the titular man in the iron mask yeah yeah the the details don't totally matter um it's it and i think it's actually presented as like some of these things might actually be true which is ridiculous but the thing that i love about this movie it's a movie set in france um no one except for gerard Depardieu has a French accent. Like you've got Gabriel Byrne, who's got his, is he Irish? He's Irish. Yes. Okay. He's got his, he's got his Irish accent. You've got Leo who's just, you know, little sissy Leo at yeah. that point. Uh, and then you've got John Malkovich who's just playing John Malkovich. Um, I'm feel like I'm leaving someone out as well. Jeremy Irons, of course, Jeremy Irons. Yeah. Who's just playing a Jeremy Irons? you know, your typical Jeremy Irons character. And to put all those people together, it's just, no one cared about, you know, continuity of even attempting to, to create a setting or an accent. It's just like, I mean, it feels almost like a thrown together B forties movie or thirties movie. You, you and know. I, you have, I have talked before about enjoying movies in which you can tell that the people in it are having fun. Uh-huh. This is the opposite. This, <laughs> This is a. This is where you can tell nobody wants to be there, and they're all very. Up, they're, they're so talented, like Jeremy Irons and John Malkovich. Yeah. They're so damn talented that they're still entertaining, but they don't want to be there. But there's there's no difference between uh, John Malkovich's performance here and his performance in something like Burn After Reading. It's and it's wonderful because he's not even he's not even attempting to 
be in a period movie. Um, so that's, that's mainly iron mask. Um, my other recommendation, I'm just going to skim over it real quick because I spent a lot of time on this is, uh, the new world, the Terrence Malick movie shot by Emmanuel Lubezki, um, thematically has a lot of things similar, not revenge, but a lot of things similar going on to the revenant, um, a much better, a much prettier, um, a much more well put together sort of film about, um, about white men and, uh, native Americans, you know, interacting and, and about this metaphysical idea of, uh, connection and whatnot. Um, so that's, that's, uh, the new world. It, you know what? I don't think that one has a criterion release, but, uh, there is, there is a beautiful, um, there is a beautiful director's cut and Christian Bale shows up like two and a half hours in. Yeah. So there you go. And we'll be talking much more about Terrence Malick in the next few episodes, whenever night of cups comes out, I'm sure we'll be talking more about metaphysical connection and whatnot <laughs> as, as well. Getting metaphysical with Malick. Is that what <laughs> yes, we're going to exactly call it? Getting metaphysical with Malick. Well, ladies and gentlemen, until then, that's another wrap of war starts at midnight. Check us out online at warstartsmidnight.com for show notes, weekly movie recommendations, and more. You can say hi to Hunter on Facebook or me on Twitter at WSAMPod. And if you've made it this far into the credits, let's face it, you should probably subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you rate us or write us a nice little review? It'll help us reach new listeners and it'll make you feel awesome. But if you are the trolling type who's just been hate listening through these credits, well, then why don't you tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if you are a narcissist, leave us a voicemail and we may play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. Shout out to Sam Means for the music on this week's show. Check out his brand new album, 10 Songs, at sammeansmusic.com. Join us next week as we go back in time, sort of, for a special episode zero review of The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. But your damned young idiot war starts at midnight. And join us in another fortnight as we review the Coen Brothers' latest Hail Caesar. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next week.